Hello, and welcome to this episode of By His Word. I am your host and teacher, Candy Carmichael. One of the things that made Jesus such an exceptional teacher, teacher was his ability to enjoy and use everyday objects and activities to explain his message. Sometimes he wrapped the precepts in parables, and other times he spoke very plainly so that even a child could understand. If we examine the methods of Jesus, we will not only gain greater, deeper understanding of his word, but we can learn how to communicate the word better to those around us. Jesus did not have the advantage of using media as we do today. He did not use charts, big screens, or movies. He did not have a fancy sound system and music to enhance his sermons. He simply used what was available to convey a message for the moment. Jesus did not choose the well-educated or the elite of society to help convey his message. The disciples were from among the common people of the day, often from the fishing communities in the Galilee. One day, while out walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Peter, and Andrew, who were casting their nets into the sea, hoping for a good catch of fish. Jesus often used comparisons or allegories. In this case, he spoke to Simon and Andrew, saying, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, Mark 1.17. Jesus knew that these two men would understand this illustration because they were very familiar with how to fish. They knew the right way to catch fish, the time of day that they were closest to the surface, what attracted them or scared them away, and what bait to use for each type of fish. By applying these precepts in a spiritual sense, they could learn to catch souls for the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that those who were his followers were the salt of the earth. Salt in those days was a valuable commodity, used not only for seasoning and preserving food, but in some areas it was actually a form of currency. But to be useful for anything, salt had to be fresh. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot by men. Matthew 5.13 A pastor once said that a salty Christian makes a thirsty world. If a believer has lost his testimony or if his life does not match his profession, then the unbelievers around him will be unaffected and may even soundly reject him. The audience listening to Jesus preach was made up of the local men, women, and children in the area. They could grasp the precepts wrapped in familiar terms in their lives. Jesus goes on to illustrate how believers should be lights to a dark world. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill should not be hidden. Nor do they put light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5, 14-16. Jesus, of course, was the light of the world who shone a light into darkness that could not overcome the light. John 1, 4, and 5. When Jesus was on earth, he could only be in one place at one time. But when multitudes of people became believers in him, then his light was placed within them, and they became little lights all around the world. Jesus was admonishing people to let the light shine so that others would come to the light of Jesus and become followers of him. To hold an audience, a speaker must be not only interesting, but also humorous at times. Many people have the concept that Jesus was always serious and never cracked a joke. But several years ago, a Christian film company acted out the book of Matthew using only the scriptures as script for the actors. In the movie theater, the, the actor playing Jesus was speaking on judgment in the Sermon on the Mount. While walking around through the crowd, he spoke these words, Judge not, so that you won't be judged. For without judgment, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. 
And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 1-5. The actor playing Jesus walked up to a person in the crowd and borrowed a shepherd's staff for a moment. Holding it next to his own eye, Jesus looked closely at the man in the crowd while trying to see a speck in the man's eye while there was a plank in his own. This was a humorous possibility that Jesus may have used to illustrate this part of his teaching. Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount with an illustration that most Sunday school children learned in a song entitled, The Wise Men Build His House Upon a Rock. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock." But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Matthew 7, 24-27 The men in the crowd would know that any building meant to last had to be built upon a strong, immovable foundation. Any building constructed on sand would be easily toppled with the shifting sands beneath it. In the same way, Jesus was saying that lives must be built upon Him, a sure foundation that could easily withstand any storm. A life built on anything else except Jesus would be destroyed by the storms of life. When Jesus finished teaching on the mount, the Bible says the people were astonished. Never before had they heard such clear teaching. It was so different from what they had previously heard, and it was often the opposite of what they were previously taught. There were times when Jesus spoke in parables even with his disciples. A parable is defined as a simple story or a moral or religious lesson that uses comparisons. For example, Jesus spoke of the coming transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant when he spoke this parable. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new piece makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wines into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Luke 5, 36-38. Clothing was expensive and had to last for most people until it literally fell apart. So the people knew exactly what he meant when Jesus spoke of putting new cloth patches on old, worn clothing. It not only would not match, but the patch would tear away from the old cloth. Wineskins <clears throat> in biblical times were made from animal skins, usually a goat or a sheep. It was tanned and the hairs cropped very close, then closed into a bag-like shape with cords except for one opening. The wine was not left in the skins for long since it would have tainted the flavor from the skins. The fermentation of the wine would slightly expand the skins. This is why old wine skins, which had become stiff and dried out, could not be holding new wine. The fermentation would burst the old skins, ruining them and spilling the wine. When Jesus comes into our lives, he not only is the new wine within us, but he automatically renews the wineskins of our lives. We become new creations in Christ. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who became a follower of Jesus after having a private conversation with him. When explaining to the Jewish ruler what it meant to be born again, Jesus compared the Holy Spirit with wind. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3.8 The Hebrew word for wind, breath, and spirit is ruach. Just as the Lord breathed into Adam the breath of life, the Holy Spirit breathes new life into believers when they receive Him. Notice that Jesus says that when the wind of the Spirit comes, there is a sound. That is why speaking in a new language as the Spirit gives power to do so is the universal sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees were constantly demanding that Jesus give them a sign proving His divinity. But Jesus did not want people to depend on sign, but rather upon His Word. When they persisted in asking, Jesus answered them in this way, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12, 39 and 40. Here Jesus was predicting his own death, but also his resurrection. Just as Jonah came out from the belly of the great fish, Jesus would rise from the dead three days later. This sign, if believed, would be the greatest proof of his divinity that he could give. Jesus compared himself with many familiar objects, but one comparison caused offense, and many followers decided to leave him after hearing it. Then Jesus said unto them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he who eats me shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, and as your fathers ate manna and are dead, he who eats of this bread shall live forever. John six fifty three to 58 Jesus was definitely not promoting cannibalism. He was saying that, that as he, who was the Word made flesh, he would satisfy spiritual hunger to the utmost. He told Satan during his temptation in the wilderness prior to starting his earthly ministry that man would not live by bread alone in the natural, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. His blood would, not, would wash us clean from sin and be like the washing of water of the Word. The body and blood of Jesus were filled with life because He was the life and the light of men, John 1.4. When teaching the people, Jesus emphasized the need for humility when doing or giving something for God. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you are you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, and do not, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward." But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. Matthew 6, 1-4 By announcing your gifts to the people you want to benefit, you not only lose your reward from God, but it could also be highly embarrassing for the one receiving the gift. If in Jesus' day the bypass the hypocrites literally announced their gifts with a tra- trumpet bat blast. It would hold, it would stir both envy and scorn among those who found 
and heard and saw the actions of the giver. It is far better to receive the commendation and reward from God himself when the gift is given quietly and without the knowledge of others, if possible. Jesus went on to speak of those who like to display their supposed spirituality with public prayers. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Matthew 6, 5 and 6. It is amusing to hear some people turn on their prayer voices when asked to pray in public. Rather than a natural conversational tone, they suddenly start using voice tones and language designed to impress the listeners with their deep reverence. Jesus wants us to be natural and relaxed in public as well as in private and not to appear more spiritual than we really are. The religious elite during the time of Jesus were always trying to make excuses for their behavior, but Jesus did not give in to that idea. He advocated strong measures to avoid temptation and sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, for it is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 43-48. Jesus was not telling people to cut off body parts. What he was saying was that if your desires to sin cause you to sin, and if you are going to places that make you commit acts contrary to the word of God, then you were to cut yourself off from those places and even from people who could cause you to sin. The penalty of not doing this was severe. Continued sin would eventually lead to eternal destruction in hell. It was far better to cut away the association of sin rather than to suffer forever the penalties that they could bring. One of the most well-known parables of Jesus was the one about the sower and the seed. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. Luke 8, 5-8a. The disciples came to Jesus for an explanation of the parable, and Jesus gave a detailed explanation. And we're going to take a brief break, and you can find out how to be witnesses in 177 different countries around the world. We will be right back. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click donate. You can also text give by texting the dollar amount followed by the word radio to the number 84321. First time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax deductible. Join us as we change the world. Welcome back. We were talking about the sower and the seed, and Jesus gives this explanation. 
Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, but in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Luke eight eleven to fifteen. What Jesus was describing was four different conditions of people's hearts when the Word of God was presented to them. Some people may listen, but Satan immediately presents a distraction to pull them away from the, cons- from the conviction of the Word. They are often careless hearers or those not truly interested in hearing the Word. Many people are impulsive responders to the Word and immediately make a commitment to be a Christian believer. But as soon as tests and difficulties arise, they become discouraged and gradually or sometimes suddenly fall away. Sadly, many never return. Others receive the Word, but they are so overloaded with the cares of life that they never become useful, productive Christians in the kingdom of God. They have a relationship with the Lord and with other believers, but they do not become active in the church or affect others with their testimony. If we look at the explanation of the results of the seed being sown in hearts in terms of percentages, only about 25% of hearers truly become productive workers in God's kingdom. Being a hearer of the word carries a heavy responsibility to be a doer of the word. But those who follow through and do the word will receive untold rewards in this life and in the life to come. In a similar parable regarding sowing and reaping, Jesus speaks of wheat and tares. He put forth another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then the tares also appeared. The servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then did the tares appear? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, because while you gather up the tares, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather the tares first and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew 13, 24-30 Tares are actually wild weeds that look very much like wheat as they grow, but they become dark and stiff at harvest time. Unlike wheat, they do not sway with the wind. Notice that in the parable, the tares were sown while people slept. It is a warning to stay alert to the enemy's tactics of sowing discord, false doctrines, and troublemakers into the congregation. People who are characterized as tares are unbending in their attitudes and not moved by the winds of the Holy Spirit. If they do eventually leave a church, they often take others with them who are uprooted by the divisiveness of the tares. It is often difficult to distinguish the tares until spiritual damage is caused. Tares are the ones who cause subtle discord in the congregation. They remain unmoved by the wind of the Holy Spirit and are resistant to changes from routine or from outpourings of the Spirit. Tares are often selfish and criticize any expenditure of church finances that they deem unnecessary, especially with outreach or expansion. As always, the Lord gains gives space to repent. He works on the hearts of those who resist Him and is always looking for the person to repent. 
but if this does not occur, then the tares will eventually be separated from the harvest. In Mark 10, the story is told of a rich young man who knelt before Jesus and asked what he needed to do to obtain eternal life. The man had kept all of the commandments from the time he was young. Jesus told the man that he needed to sell what he had, give to the poor, and then come and follow him. This was something the young man had not expected to be required of him, and he walked away from Jesus and back to his possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Mark 10, 23-27 When Jesus talked about the eye of a needle, most people think of a literal sewing needle. But in the In Jerusalem at the time, there was a gate where camels who were laden with merchandise had to kneel to go underneath to the other side. It was difficult, but not impossible to accomplish. What Jesus was saying was that people can become so attached to their possessions that they are unable to trust in the source of all that is given, God himself. They don't realize that he is able to replenish anything that is lost. And even if all were to be lost on earth for the sake of God's kingdom, the rewards in heaven are eternal and far greater than anything a person could possess in this life. One thing that was prominent in the teaching of Jesus was that of forgiveness. But forgiveness from God is also conditional upon our willingness to forgive others. Peter came to Jesus and asked how many times he should forgive someone. He suggested seven times, thinking that he was being quite generous to suggest that amount. But Jesus replied, No, Peter, you need to forgive seventy times seven. Jesus then goes on to give this parable of a king taking account of his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, there was one brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had in payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, crying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he refused and went and threw him into the prison until he paid the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved and came and told the master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and threw him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if... You from the heart do not forgive your brother his trespasses. Matthew eighteen twenty four to thirty five. Jesus is pointing out that what we are forgiven by the Lord in order to obtain our eternal salvation is massive compared with what others could do to sin against us. It is important to remember that forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a choice. This does not mean that you instantly have warm, fuzzy feelings toward the ones who have done wrong toward you. It means that you release the anger and the bitterness caused by the wrong and no longer hold it against them 
when thinking of them. When Jesus spoke of of what whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven this also applies to forgiveness if we bind unforgiveness to our hearts then the lord in heaven is bound and unable to forgive us from our sins but if we loose the person from their guilt and forgive them then the lord is free to forgive us as well one reason why people were often astonished at the doctrine of jesus was that he often preached the opposite of what they thought would logically be true this was illustrated beautifully when Jesus was in the temple one day. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given into the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Mark 12, 41-44. I'm sure the widow tried to put in the offering quietly, since it was so small. She may have been ashamed that that was all that she had to give. But the Lord saw the generosity of her spirit, and he surely saw to it that her needs were met in miraculous ways after that. What Jesus was trying to show his disciples was that it was not the size of the gift that was important, but it was the motive behind it that matters to God. When the gift is a sacrifice, as it was with this widow, that makes it all the more precious than ever to God. We live in an age of instant gratification where most of our needs are met quickly. We communicate with people around the globe instantly through phone or internet. We cook food quickly with a microwave. We can dictate entire books with voice to text. We have learned to get answers quickly and often without persistent. But it is usually not the same in the spiritual world. And then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary and he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 1-8. So many times we think that prayer should be a one and done. We want instant answers to prayer, like God should receive our payment of one or two prayers and then we receive the spiritual merchandise that we are praying for. Persistence shows that we are willing to wait for the answer to prayer and to trust in God's timing. It also shows God that we truly desire what we are seeking Him for. As long as it is in line with the Word, we can be assured that He will answer in His time and in the best way. And this is where we must be careful that it does line up with the Word and that we really want this. People often impulsively said to Jesus that they would follow Him, but that they did not first consider the cost of discipleship. Jesus said to a certain man, Follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 59-62. Now in that first illustration, it would seem that Jesus was being rather cruel by not letting the man go and bury his father. But this was not the original funeral. What happened is that people were buried instantly, at least on the same day when they died, and then after about a year or so, the body had deteriorated down to the bones. It was at this time that they would take the bones, wash them, and then put them in a small box called an ossuary, and then rebury it. So this is what the man was talking about. This was the reburial of this. So what Jesus was saying is that nothing should hinder immediate and total service to Jesus. The man wanting to bury his father was wanting to take care of the remains that were just bones from the earlier death. What Jesus was saying is that this chore could be done by someone else and it should not delay the man's immediate service. Now these are just some of the wonderful teachings of Jesus. They have proven to be life-changing for countless millions of people. Until next week, keep looking up and listening for that trumpet sound. We hope you are enjoying today's show. We believe that God has given us a voice to impact communities and regions all over the world. If you would like to make sure that voice is heard, please partner with us today by visiting www.expressionradio.org and click Donate. You can also text give by texting the dollar amount followed by the word radio to the number 84321. First time text givers, please choose Expression Church of Huntington when prompted. All gifts are tax deductible. Join us as we change the world.